Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and Anthony Oliveira, PhD, writer, and dumpster raccoon. You'd think that bands like Zeppelin releasing iconic tracks like Ramble On and Black Sabbath debuting their first album in 1970, their endurance would be reflected on the Billboard charts of that year. But something happened in 1969. Maybe it was Altamont, like so many things are blamed on. But the American Billboard chart took a hard turn towards Christian music. Were people growing tired of the debauchery preached by the Stones and wanted a more uplifting lyric? Sending tracks like Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky and, of course, the Doobie Brothers' Jesus is Just Alright to the top of the charts and keeping them there. Adding a driving beat and electric guitar to traditional Christian religious songs made them bonafide hits in 70 to roughly 72, and that carried over into Broadway and songs from our two movies today that topped charts and launched careers. Uh, Anthony, why do you think the Christian religious movement of the early 70s inspired two of the biggest musical theater composers of all time? Like, we're talking Stephen Schwartz and Andrew Lloyd Webber here. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. I think there's a lot of cultural forces that kind of conspire to make these two musicals happen. Um, and first, generally, like, musicals tend to compete. Like, there were two Phantom of the Operas in development at the same time. Like, that's a thing that happens. I'm sure on this podcast, you've dealt with, like, The yeah. Illusionist versus The Prestige. There's, sure. like, four Pinocchio movies coming out this year. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's part of it. Another part of it, though, is I think that into the late 60s and musicals take a while to develop um, but there's a real cultural interest in reappropriating or rethinking about Jesus as um, a force for social justice critique mm. um, for cultural critique I mean there's a lot of forces that I think conspire to make that happen like Second Vatican Council happens in the late 60s mid 60s and it's kind of weird how we've sort of forgotten as a culture, how influential that was. It's sort mm. of a, it was the moment the Roman Catholic Church sort of like thought about, well, these masses should be celebrated in the vernacular and that sort of mm. thing. Um, got the Lost Temptation of Christ translated into English in 1960. Uh, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Scrolls discovered. Like there's an interest in mm. reconfiguring what these things mean for us as a culture. And I think this these musicals come out of that interest, that sort of the Jesus movement was emerging as a mm. thing, the, the Jesus freaks out in the streets handing tickets out for God, right? Like, <laughs> there was kind of, there was kind of a, a Christian component to the hippie movement that mm. I think disappears. Um, even like the, the, the Pasolini had just made the Gospel of Matthew in mm. like 1964. Unibrow Jesus, have you guys seen that yeah. one? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like these homoerotic images <laughs> of Jesus as like a person engaged in cultural critique. And I think that the, these musicals emerge from that interest for sure. I also think it's worth saying that there's the dorky Christian music that was still popular, like Peter, Paul and Mary, like oh, yeah. the kind of coffee house Christianity, the birds yeah. turn, turn, turn is a, just the Bible, <laughs> you know, like there's, there is that. So it's like, maybe that was moving slowly towards rock in its own yeah. way. And I think that the nihilism that comes out of, I mean, like Vietnam, um, oh eventually people do want to see something hopeful again. I was thinking as I was rewatching Godspell last night, like in what ways is the musical hair influencing this? And in turn, mm. in, is this movie influencing hair, right? Like, yeah. Which is yeah. also interested in sort of this occupation of New York as mm. being a way to critique the system. There's also a reason Ted Neely is in both of them, right? Like it's very yeah. much a crossover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I think the culture was ripe for this kind of interesting reconfiguration of a figure that always feels like he belongs to the people in charge. I like that you brought up Vatican II because what was interesting to me with both these movies is who decided to boycott what? Like who took offense mm. to things because mm. the the Vatican was very into Jesus Christ Superstar. Like initially they were like, we don't know how we feel about this. And then like the Pope came right out and said it was like, I have screened it at the Vatican. We are down with this. We endorse it. Uh, I love Pope movie endorsements. <laughs> I, I will forever remember it is as it was his endorsement of uh, the Passion of Christ. Did he put out uh, <laughs> yes. the two po- uh, a statement about the two popes? Because there is more than one. Did they have feelings know. about that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, know. I don't think that they allow Ratzinger to talk anymore. I yeah, think he's in no, they, jail. <laughs> you just leave a plate in his attic and he scuttles <laughs> off the ceiling. To fetch yes, it, yeah. the man in the iron mask <laughs> is who Ratzinger is right now. All right. Well, let's get into our first movie, Godspell, because if you do a quick Google for Godspell Toronto, you're going to be surprised to see some of the names that appear in the cast credits of a legendary run in 1972 of the play. Now, in that cast were folks like Eugene Dave Thomas, Andrea Martin, Victor Garber, and Paul Schaefer. It's the production where Martin Short met his wife, Nancy Dolman, and Lauren Michaels first saw Gilda Radner. Now, of this incredible cast, it was only Victor Garber who was chosen to appear in the film version of the musical, reprising the lead role of Jesus alongside performers from the Broadway, L.A., and Chicago runs. The more playful of the two movies today, it's the one that depicts a man's crucifixion where you'll leave uplifted and with a song in your heart. So let's get into Godspell. (laughs) Cam, this plot is all yours. Good luck. It's great. (laughs) Plot. Yeah. Series of parables we can all learn from. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they they even kind of uh, credit it as like (laughs) question mark plot inspired by. uh, Yeah. So the plot as it is, is... Is, uh, a John the Baptist type man appears in New York City um, and uh, goes around town somewhat magically blowing his shofar <laughs> and uh, collecting <laughs> the various disciples of Jesus then or you know, stand-ins for he then uh, baptizes them in Central Park and uh, then uh, Victor Garber appears as Jesus uh, and from there they kind of it's there of like a band of merry pranksters <laughs> <laughs> who go around in abandoned New York uh, telling various parables. And it's, it's, it's interesting because they often tell kind of classic parables and then have Jesus comment on them and, and kind of show that tension. But they tell them in a way that's like, it's uh, to me, I'm like, this is like Robin Williams performing yeah. the Bible. Yeah. They love vaudeville. They love impressions. They love voices. Yeah, it's a real tough, if, if you're a... Uh, if you're like a 90s kid, it's tough to consume this as intended it, uh, without it is, irony. The kid said, pretty cringe. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, but it's almost like, I almost respect that it it is so pushing it at you that it's like, you can't, you, you, yeah. you can only engage with the cringe. There's no, there's not really an ironic reading because it's pure earnestness exactly. in a way. I think this movie really captures... Uh, an element that I think gets downplayed a lot, which is Jesus must have been incredibly annoying. Yes. Uh, and I, <laughs> I think this yes. thing really captures that. Yeah, it's adapted from the Gospel of Matthew, which is, um, I think of it as the bougie gospel. Like, <laughs> y- you get the sense, as much as they're dressed like hippies, like, the message that comes across is very, like, pacifist Jesus, yeah. liberalist mm. Jesus, like, pay your taxes, respect the law. <laughs> Please do not hurt these people trying to crucify me, right? Like, yeah. although as, as much as I say that, like, it's also a, it captures something that's very Markin, which is like, he just kind of appears. Like, literally, he's just mm-hmm. on the shore. If he has, they say the name Jesus, like, twice, I think, in the mm-hmm. whole thing. Once yeah. as a joke, like, as a curse, but. Yeah. So if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn and offer him your left. Oh, Jesus Christ. <gasps> he just kind of appears. There seems to be, which I've never noticed before, it seems to take place in a day, right? Yeah. Like they mm. get baptized in the morning and then he's dead at night. Like, mm. um, And then the city just kind of swallows up the events, right? Like yeah. we're in this scary, depopulated New York and the last shot is that 
surge of the crowd sort of absorbing them back into itself. Um, not a super optimistic ending, actually. No. Like, no. Yeah. Just Other than the song, yeah. yeah. The yeah. nice song. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which all the music is really uplifted. So Stephen Schwartz actually doesn't like the film version. He believes mm. it's too flower childy and it doesn't capture the anarchy of the actual play. And I can kind of see like this is a very odd choice for a film version of something where I am sure like the the uh, characters are in the audience with you when you think about the people who were mm, in yeah. um, the uh, the Toronto version you're like these are improvers these are very big broad performers I'm sure the energy was electric when you're watching this so you would be hanging on to the words of these stories and it wouldn't feel as preachy it would be more like you're involved in this whereas this one you're more of a bystander to it because you're not as in as into the world right. it's interesting yeah. yeah I think that's generally something when you're adapting a musical to film that always becomes a problem, like the identities of these, as Cam was saying, with the identities of who these characters are is very slippery in Godspell. Like the, the John the Baptist figure becomes the Judas figure. And I think on stage that's fine because they're only actually, there's a character actually holding a puppet in this. And there is something punch and Mm. Judy ish about this, this movie where it's just like, they're not really people. There's this weird, attempt to give them a biography at the beginning that is really just the identity that falls away once they're baptized. And then they just turn Mm -hmm. into Jesus's like parable puppets, right? Like let's talk about the good Samaritan and all this stuff. And I think that does in contradistinction to like Jesus Christ superstar, where everyone is very careful. Like the agony of that last week of Jesus's Mm -hmm. life is very carefully delineated here. They just kind of let's think about those stories for a minute. And I do think you're right that there would be something more, anarchic and carnival-esque about it being in front of you on stage there seems to be a lot of audience engagement which i hate so much (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah it's the same problem that the movie of cats has i think where like the magic of cats is that the cats are crawling all over you and stuff (laughs) and that the the trash can flies over your head it's not uh people in cat suits (laughs) looking stupid well you can't not compare the two jesus's right because we're looking at ted neely and then two very different in interpretations of the story right like here this is joyous and even when he goes to his death he's joyous whereas you're seeing someone very much more in turmoil in jesus christ superstar which is being reflected in the two performances of victor garber and ted neely victor garber is going for this like number one Mm. it's so nice to see victor garber like as a baby like baby um because now Uh we like he's one of those actors i always think of i'm like you've been like what 48 forever and then suddenly you were 90 like that's kind of how that worked um but (laughs) and i see what you mean by like annoying because he is just so ethereal in this like i was gonna say that's the weird thing is he like these people seem more like real people i think than jesus christ superstar but he is more the magic uh, yeah. unearthly jesus it reminds earth kind of thing yeah, yeah. It, it reminded me of uh, we show on our channel as well uh the jesus of nazareth with robert powell and that one they mm. like they worked very hard to never have him blink on camera because <laughs> yeah zeffirelli's like he's not human he has to be inhuman and i feel like garber kind of gets yeah. that that he's like he is this kind of floating, odd character. Well, then my question yeah, for you his... is, which Jesus do you prefer? Do you prefer inhuman or do you prefer human and, and like, ethereal and, like, not capable of wrong but is going to his death and make those sacrifices for us because he, know, he knows he must because for the greater good? Or do you prefer the deeply troubled, like, I am human, but I just happen to have this burden upon me, which is sitting in Jesus Christ Superstar? What's your what's your Jesus per- preference in terms of the story? Mm. I like a weirdo. I like <laughs> um, I like a spooky. My podcast we did the Gospel of Mark, and now we're on the Gospel of John, and they're both they're both the spookier Jesuses. <laughs> they're both the ones where he's like, whoop, he like disappears, and the crowd's like, where'd he go? Like, <laughs> or like he forgets he has to eat sometimes, no. or like he's just like magic just kind of comes off, and like if you touch your, his robe, it's like, oh, I'm healed, and it's like what, yeah. he spits in people's eyes. Like I like that. <laughs> As a choice, I like a Jesus, but I like a Jesus who's tactile too, which this one is Mm. not, right? Like he Mm. does have a kind of ethereal, angelic quality. Um, I like a Jesus who has to spit in your eyes to cure your blindness and stuff, like jam, gives you a wet willy to cure your deafness. Like (laughs) there is something about that that I like. Um, But I mean, the biggest difference, of course, is that, uh, and this is related to this problem of like emotional agony, is there's no 
emotional connections here, whereas Jesus Christ mm-hmm. Superstar is all about the Mary Magdalene and the Judas of it all, mm-hmm. right? Like what, how do you relate humanly to something so inhuman and to a mission that has such far-reaching, like, epic consequences. And do you believe this person is who we say they are, who they have imbued themselves with? Because the whole point of Jesus Christ Superstar is he keeps saying, I didn't say I'm this, you guys are saying I'm this, right? So, I mean, it's interesting to see the two things, whereas this, the Victor Garber Jesus is like, yeah, I'm Jesus, and I'm here to teach you, and, like, listen to me talk, whereas Jesus Christ Superstar, it's more of, like, I am having all this put upon me rather than I am putting it out. Yeah, yeah. The reasons he dies are quite different, Mm. too, right? Like, Jesus Christ Superstar is so interested in the political. I mean, it's based on the Gospel Mm, of Luke, so it's interested in explaining and engaging with uh, Rome versus the empire, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is trying to build. Like, it becomes about kind of absolving Roman authority for misreading the uh, treasonous dimension Mm. of Jesus' message, whereas... He comes across, because it's the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is a rabbi, right? He's like Mm. teaching you um, through these parables about the law. He's teaching you how to be a good person and a good Jewish person specifically. Uh, And he dies in this um, for challenging the the weird Pharisee Voltron that fights on the boat, right? The the final boss of this movie (laughs) is that scary puppet. I I mean, I love that part. That part's like the whiz. That's where it's like, oh yeah, Yeah. this is always kind of like the whiz, but then there's a weird monster. Yeah, I I also heard a great, because I I saw, I just found a debate between kind of two people who are religious and and which movie they liked more and blah, blah, blah. And the one guy said like he can't, he doesn't like that there's like so little Judas, that Judas is just kind of like an afterthought thought here Mm. but the other guy was saying he enjoys that because he like he imagines that this is depicting a christ who was so single-minded in his preaching that he essentially is ignoring the discontent amongst his followers and that that the crucifixion kind of sneaks up on him because he's just not paying attention yeah i mean what both films have is i mean i think it's funny but the musicals are where you get engagement with him as a as a teacher right like over and against mm. the kind of pathetic, like pious versions you get from made for TV or yeah. like the passion of the Christ where it's like, you're not going to get, mm. not going to get anything about actually <laughs> what he believed or what he yeah. did. It's or like, even like the hyper criticism of like the last temptation of Christ, right? Like where it's yeah. just like total tongue in cheek of. Yeah. The Scorsese arc is interesting. Because <laughs> um, that's another one where it's like, he's screening silence for the Pope recently. Yeah. Right. Like the, mm. Jesuit movie. Um, Yeah, I actually feel like if you want a good sense of what these gospels are like, these movies are actually great adaptations of them uh, up to and including for Jesus Christ Superstar. Like they retain the encoding of like the anti-Semitism of that gospel, Mm. right? Like Mm. there's the crowd being like, blame us. It's fine. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are both musicals, as we mentioned. Uh, How do Mm. we feel about the musical sequences here? Now, we've already brought up The Wiz once. Uh, Anthony actually brought up The Wiz earlier. And I mean, that's because Mm. this is like New York with large friendly letters. They're on top of the Twin Towers dancing. They're in Central Park. They're in Times Square. That Times Square, all the best sequence is my favorite of this this film. I really enjoy that. Sure. How do we feel about the music here? Does it fit? Is it? Does this need to be a musical? I mean, yes, because <laughs> so much music. Uh, and also, I feel like the music's the best part. Like, if we were just left with these impressions doing, uh, you know, wh- I can't even think weird <laughs> vaudeville voices, I, I kind of hate it. <laughs> and after coming up, growl, 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 but yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. The David Green, the director, who we haven't mentioned much, is like a, he was an actor. He was a Rada guy. Uh, and the interesting thing is, this is kind of his big feature film. But what he went on to do was Roots and Rich mm. Man Poor Man, the big TV oh. movies of the of the seventies. Uh, but yeah, he was very into avoiding it being theatrical. That's why quite a lot of the cast is not the original cast, other than uh, one of them is Marie on Sesame Street, so she could do it. And one of them had done. <laughs> Apparently. It has <laughs> but, uh, a real Sesame Street energy. We're, yeah, we're you know what? About, it does. Uh, follow that bird later yeah. this season, and I can confirm that. <laughs> yeah, oh. I mean, great. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting. But yeah, it's I do like the dancing. I do feel like when they get into like a musical number, whereas Jesus Christ Superstar feels more like a traditional musical. Uh-huh. Uh, when they get into the singing and dancing, it's great. And it's worth saying, like Victor Garber, yeah, he was. Uh, 
you know, before this, I don't know if you guys know, he was a, a relatively successful folk singer in this band Sugar Shop, which is like the Canadian Mamas and Papas, uh, which I suggest looking up on Ed Sullivan if you like him <laughs> in a weird suit. Um, and Does he have yeah, this big hair? God, I love the hair. Yes, I love yes. the hair. Uh, yeah, <laughs> even bigger, maybe. Yeah, he uh, and a lot of great suits. There's a great their, their album cover. He's in like a green, like a lime green suit with a cravat. I really recommend it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I do like it when they get into the songs. And the weird thing is. I do think, we'll get into it, I think I prefer the songs generally from Jesus Christ Superstar. I think that's maybe a better musical, but I'll be damned if Day by Day was not in my head all week. You know, like that, <laughs> that, that was is the one that was the earworm. That on the Billboard <laughs> Top 100 and it stayed there for weeks. Like, it was a big hit. Wow. I find cool. that, I like yeah. Beautiful City a lot. Okay. I love that song. And I love Turn Back, Oh Man. I love the the slinky, sexy, <laughs> film noir, femme fatale, chanteuse. Sure quality yeah. to that one i've been like beautiful city was written week. for the movie um, though it, it's not in the original tv show or yeah. not the original pl- uh, play and i didn't realize how much i mean going to your question about the new yorkiness of it all i think it's about new york in a way that i didn't think about mm. before and i i don't think <laughs> as much as it uses the cinematic beauty of the city I'm surprised in rewatching it how much it seems to be critiquing the city. I, I sort of mm. talked earlier about the way the the city just swallows him up at the end. His body, mm. they turn a corner with his body and they disappear and the crowd surges and swallows it up. Um, but even the beautiful city sequence, like that song is so much about like, uh, not a city of angels, but finally a city of men, right? Like, mm. let's build something human. Let's build something socialist let's build something beautiful for each other and they're walking past the bethesda fountain right like mm-hmm. um the the big the big thing i really forgot about is just how central yeah. the world trade center is in this movie in yeah like a, a scary prophetic way actually like the scene that's in both gospels and both musicals is the scene where jesus says alas yeah. for you jerusalem right this mm-hmm. generation will see your temple fall <laughs> and in this movie he yeah. says that in front of the world trade center that's like a wild accident of history to see happen but i do think that that's the critique it's making that like the center of empire the center of capitalism does not take care of its people is not interested in these kind of weird vaudeville hobos that are running around <laughs> yes. like, critiquing it i mean i'm just fascinated I, what a fact i didn't know is that in, in a lot of the 9-11 memorials apparently beautiful city was like a constant thing that was played that song was kind of recaptured a fantastic misreading of what that song's about <laughs> sure, actually yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on steven schwartz.com there's like a great thing where like they've just kind of captured these letters people have written to him and then his responses to the letters i'm not sure if they're physical letters or emails but but um, and often people are actually asking about reevaluating these this film post 9-11, if that's stump, something Stephen Schwartz mm-hmm. has considered of like redoing this film and taking those parts out because they make people uncomfortable. And I was they like, they should make people uncomfortable. I, I as much. I mean, I understand it's like a horrible event, but like there's a reason that all for the best song climaxes atop the World Trade Center. Right. Yeah. Like because all for the best is Jesus's message being countered to uh, people who live for wealth, right? Like that's what the John the Baptist character is in that vaudeville patter is singing about, right? Yeah. Like the all for the best is a, a a double meaning, right? Like it's all for the best in the weird liberal Jesus thing where it's like the world will be fine and all for the best is in all the good things go to the best, quote unquote, best people, right? Mm. Like living in their pools and atop this, the World Trade Center. So like I'm interested in how the film does that. And I do think going to the question of musicals, what's neat about the the film is the way it uses song to kind of capture what Jesus must have been, which is like an entertainer, right? Like yeah. you, you go to listen to the crazy guy outside of town who's telling these interesting stories. The parables well, it's like are revivalisms, interesting. like revivalisms, right? Yeah. Like that's the point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And like the parables always have this twist, right? Of like, um, it's not like the good man just like you who helps the the beat up person. It's the Samaritan. It's the person mm. you hate, right? Like, or even the prodigal yeah. son. The prodigal son is one of my favorites because it's such a complicated story, right? Uh-huh. And I remember my dad telling me that story when I was a kid at one point, and then I actually think he got it wrong because <laughs> he's like, <laughs> no, no, no. It's the son who said that he was going to do the thing. It's not the other son. And I was like, 
No, but it's the wait. Hold on. Can, you, can we go back? But I think that's why these these stories are so powerful because they can be interpreted in so many ways. That's why we still mm-hmm. sermonize, right? Why we still have to have the Bible interpreted to us. It's fascinating, yeah. and I think this film does a really good job of presenting it and Jesus does comment on it, but there's not sermonizing. Like it's not telling you what to think. It's putting it out there and being like, this is what, Mm -hmm. this is what the story is. And this is what we're told about it, but I'm not going to tell you this is the, the prodigal son is the right one. Do you know what I mean? It's really interesting to me. It performs it. And because as you said, like it's not actually Jesus saying them in this, it's the, the vaudevillians are telling the story. So it becomes an act of community interpretation, right? Mm. It becomes like, how how does this story make meaning? How does it, what does it mean that the labor who arrives in the last hour gets paid the same as the guy who's been working all day? It becomes like, we as a community make this into something. Like when you talk about sermonizing, like it's actually about community building. I think that's yeah. really a neat part of this musical that Jesus Christ Superstar simply doesn't have. He has no parables in that yeah. whatsoever, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, John Michael Tebelak, who wrote it, he he talks about how there's no resurrection at the end, partially because he considers the resurrection to be like uh, like a metaphor. Like the mm-hmm. resurrection is the word being passed on through his followers. Like you you don't need a resurrection. There are a million Jesuses right, now right. because that's the people. But yeah. that's also interesting. That's a criticism of both these films is that they they don't show the resurrection and therefore there's no joy. They end on the downbeats of people. And I'm like, well, ah, criticism I don't think to so. then is pretty cool to me. <laughs> also, I feel like both of them <laughs> both of them end uh, before three days. You know, well, yeah. on, what are we going to sit around for three days? Yeah. Come on. I mean, no, there's like also, a little like time card. That's yeah. a criticism of the Gospel of Mark too. Like mm. Mark, <laughs> Mark ends where they go to the tomb. The last line of the Gospel um. of Mark is they ran away terrified because the women mm. go to the tomb and it's empty. And that's it. Oh, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> that is spooky. <laughs> so like I, I, I think a lot about uh, Kierkegaard who said like you can't say anything interesting about the resurrected Jesus because you're not mm. in a position as a human being to understand it. It is the work of a lifetime. It is the work of the Christian mm. life to get to the end and understand what that means. And I think what both films capture is like what is actually the real human experience of like what am I supposed to do with this? Like yeah. you yeah. say these things, you lived this life and now what What do I do with it? As much as the resurrection is important to Christian thinking – it's not the part that's, you either believe it or you don't. It's the other stuff that's hard to me to get a yeah. handle on, right? It's also that you died like the rest of us. Are you, yeah. were you yeah. something more than just someone who had some interesting ideas that we all wanted to chew on? You know, like that's Do you interesting. think you're what they say you are? Yeah. Oh, whoa. <laughs> I, I, was, <laughs> I was also going to say, like, imagine how bad the resurrection would have been in Godspell. It would have been like <laughs> streamers and everybody yeah. putting on voices. We don't need any more of that. A Frankenstein bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, and Igor for sure, that one guy. The moments where Godspell is theatrical, like for example, when in during the crucifixion, where like it's mm. very clearly like how they would have had it on a stage, where like there's the fence and then you just see the cop cars uh-huh. in the background, right? Versus how f- filmic and cinematic it becomes, like on the Twin Towers or like dancing on those rails in front of that thing in um, in Times mm. Square. It's interesting to see the moments where they choose to go back to the theatricality versus lean into the cinematic and what the power yeah. of those two things are because i'm almost wondering like do you have to go back to the theatricality that moment because it's too hard to sit like isn't for something for a movie that's so joyous it's too hard to sit in like the realism mm. of that crucifixion if that's the case yeah, yeah i maybe. wonder if the film i mean going back to this kind of the way the film yeah. weaponizes landmarks like Imagine if they did the crucifixion at like a, yeah. a notable New York man landmark, yeah. right? Like that would be almost too on the nose in terms of critique. Like every time you walk past, you're like that's <laughs> Jesus, where they crucified yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, it's it's interesting. I weirdly this week I was engaging with a lot of New York stuff. I, I saw a big like short doc on wheat field, a confrontation. Do you guys know that where the woman built the whole wheat field and. Uh, like downtown in the financial district just to like it's like a big middle finger to the (laughs) financial district in the early 80s yeah it's great uh just a giant wheat field but then also uh i watched the new west side story which is very much about like gentrification and and kind of pre this era but it's interesting because also engaging with new york is this is right before the kind of famous uh ford to new york drop dead where so like Mm -hmm. new york is also going bankrupt Uh it's like a non-functional government at this time 
So yeah, I, I, it's, it kind of feels like you could do whatever, and it kind of felt like New York was on its own. So I do, I it, it is kind of surprising. It does feel like you could have had a crucifixion in front of the mayor's yeah. <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's also um, I found it really interesting how it doesn't like they purposely mm. walk past St. Patrick's Cathedral, right? Like yeah. they there's a moment where they're talking about in the Good Samaritan priests. And one of the vaudeville actors literally makes the sign of the cross. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, <laughs> but then that also takes you out of time yeah. and place too, right? Yeah. Like, which I, I think yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. To me, I almost feel like the opening of this one should be the opening of Jesus Christ Superstar, which is a bit mm. more magical. And the mm. opening of Jesus Christ Superstar, where it's all like performers getting off a bus, putting on a costume, is more Godspell, you know? Because it's more. that's uh. more like, they're they're more like... They act a bit more like people who are contemporary telling yeah. you what's up. You are not wrong, Cameron. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, it's weird. I, Godspell is also the weird one, it should be said. I, yeah. There's there's musicals like ta- like Milos Forman's Taking Off is kind of in the same vein, so there are these sort of theatrical musicals. But it's important to think that we're coming into 73 with both uh, Norman Jewison's Fiddler on the Roof, which is a very, like, presented as if we're in the shtetl, and uh, Cabaret in 1972. So, like, two massive financial and award successes that presented a very non-staging musical, like a mm-hmm. very cinematic, uh, historical musical. Mm-hmm. So Godspell being theatrical and weird and uh, hippie-ish is, is very out there. And it was the much less successful other than yeah. the music. <laughs> it was uh, borderline a flop. Uh, it made its money back-ish. Uh, but compared to Jesus Christ Superstar, it was not a hit. I think it's also that you see a lot of these people had uh, who were in the film had enormous careers on Broadway and through musical theater, but sure. none of them went on to do anything else film-wise with the exception of Victor Garber. And uh, I think there's... Lynn Thigpen, the chief, yes, please. Yes, exactly. The chief herself. <laughs> My bad. Sorry. I... Yeah. Everyone's favorite. Um, yeah. I, but Lynn Thigpen's first musical, which is pretty shocking, apparently, uh, is Godspell. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's And the Jerry Sorrell the one kind of handsome bearded man uh, who does uh, horrible impressions uh, is a voiceover. Yeah, voiceover king, not surprisingly. The the impression is like, as much as it can be annoying, all of them are pretty fantastic. And you don't see a lot of lady impressionists, which there are a couple here, which is kind of pretty impressive. I mean, you were talking about the sort of thinness of it. It it does have the the effect of kind of like a hippie, uh, like a happening. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. It has the kind of culture jamming thing. Again, the depopulated New York, but also just like the experience as an audience member of it is perhaps not the ideal capitalist audience experience of like, occasionally I'm like, this is boring. Like, (laughs) this is tedious. Um, This is weird. This is off-putting. And there is something about like, does that off-puttingness do a kind of work interests sure. me in some There's way? There's a, a Brechtian aspect to the music. Yes, like, for example, yeah. Day by Day comes out of nowhere. And you're, she just says, my lord, and then starts singing. And you're like, sorry, what? And this yeah. is like the banger of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. So you're jarred but pulled back in at the same time. So reverse Brechtian, it would be, technically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that it's worth saying that both of these films, and we'll probably get into it more in the next one because it suits it a bit more. Both of these films are very effortlessly diverse and also, I think, uh, sexy. Like, this is a a hot, sexy cast in both movies. Whether or not you like a weird big afro, (laughs) I I think uh, Garber has some horny energy. And I think, yeah, yeah, everybody's young and sexy and and cool in both casts. They're both very gay, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, they're very queer, like... Yes. Um, in Beautiful City, he's skipping and holding hands with John slash Judas, right? Yes. Like, oh, him and some... him and John have some real tension, yes. and, yeah, and yeah. we know that Victor Garber is a gay man, so uh, maybe yeah. there's uh, I don't know. There's something, but I mean that also leans sure. into the betrayal too, right? Like yes. I think that's part of it. So oh, yeah, and that's that's where I think like yeah, the Judas stuff is thinly done, but that guy who portrays John slash Judas is so good. He's so hurt when everything David goes Haskell, wrong with him. Yeah. He's excellent. He has an excellent, it's consistently him who's the angry one, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the movie has to take a pause while he ex- absorbs the turn the other cheek doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's an anger in him. Uh, that and, uh, Speaking of a sexy moment, like that one where uh, Jesus slaps him and he yeah. moves to slap him back. And then he does a little vaudeville thing to get him out of mm-hmm, it. Yeah. And it doesn't work. And then, <laughs> I mean, really the most upsetting dissonant moment in the whole movie for me 
is when he's about to betray Jesus and he starts singing that circus. And it like doesn't work and it sounds horrible and it really it's really off putting. And it's like the magic, the kind of carnivalesque of it is sort of dissolved. I love that so much. Uh, yeah, again, and I'm sure on, on stage that moment will be so incredibly powerful, mm. right? Because you're in with those people and they've been they've been so joyous around you. And then you can feel that emotional shift in the room, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those. It's why theater is different from film and why we still continue to go to theater and film wasn't ki- film didn't kill theater. Yeah. Video didn't kill the theater. Stars. And it's why <laughs> nobody watches the Godspell movie, but teenagers are forced to perform Godspell. It's because it has a, a big cast and lots of women. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. They do God's well. All right. On that note, I just want to leave us with uh, perhaps a little bit of a spoiler for uh, Ebert. I love when Ebert gets catty because in his review of this, he says, in deference to the several readers who didn't like my review of The Last of Sheila, written by Stephen Sondheim, interestingly, because I gave away too much of the plot, I won't reveal what happens to Christ in the end. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, guys, we totally ruined that one. So let's move on to Jesus Christ Superstar. The more thoughtful and sad version of the two, I think. Although, man, I am so in love with this musical now. That's coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When my mother found out we'd be talking about Jesus Christ Superstar on the podcast, she got extremely excited. Now, I knew she'd enjoyed this as a teen and saw it multiple times on the big screen in 1973, but what I didn't know is that she also had multiple versions of the soundtrack on vinyl, can discuss the lyrical content in detail, and did a compare and contrast to the events of the Bible to the interpretations made by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. She has very strong opinions about Jesus casting, Ian Gillian in, Ted Neely out, and through a lengthy discussion with her, I think I now love this movie and the musical very much and will be watching it again probably more than once to pick up on more of the nuances. Does this one tickle you, Anthony? Is this a good one for you? Oh, I this one's in my <laughs> like, I know this one backwards and forwards. I love, 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 love this musical. I think it's one of the first of all, I think it's one of the like best things Andrew Lloyd Webber ever did, which is high praise. Kind of uh, <laughs> the man knows how to write a tune. Like they are catchy AF. Like regardless of he is a human being. Yeah. Yes, he's a stick of pin in it guy right now. But uh, but uh, like I mean, you can't d- deny that like memory is one of the greatest songs ever written. No, you would be crazy. Uh, yeah, and it's. Um, I also think it's one of the most sophisticated engagements with. Um, the philosophy and the politics of this story, uh, again, over and against kind of the more pious, careful versions of it. I like that it's willing to put its foot out and say something occasionally bold and audacious. Um, and I think it captures sort of the desperation of this like last week of Jesus's life. And how tired they must be and the concept of the demands on yeah. everybody. Yeah. Sweaty, uh, sunburnt. <laughs> yeah, these guys all look exhausted. Which I like because it's like the, the, that's yeah. it leads into like why everyone is making the decisions they make. Like this, I think, is the most clear mm-hmm. I've ever seen of like why Judas is betraying Jesus. And he's doing it for not out of greed, which is how you so often see it. It's because I think I'm doing something for the greater good. Like, it's just, it's such an interesting take on everything. 
Oh, and everyone is fraught. I like that too. Like you see that like Caiaphas feels yeah. bad that Jesus is crucified. <laughs> like just about nobody wants him to be crucified, which is kind of wild too. It's uh yeah, so they they humanize like every single mini character in a way. I like the idea that the yeah. that most boycotters here were just pissed at the idea that Jesus would sing at all. <laughs> like, sure. That's so fascinating to me. <laughs> Jesus doesn't sing. It's like, well, what do you think you do in church? Like, uh, it's sounds like weird. you've yeah never been to a synagogue, my friend. <laughs> yeah. A lot of singing. Uh, do you want to walk uh, us yeah. through a little bit of the plot here, Anthony? Just, I mean, obviously we know, but like, kind of what are the differences between the two, right? Yeah. Uh, well, so Jesus Christ Superstar is based mostly on the Gospel of Luke. Um, I called. The Gospel of Matthew, the bougie gospel, uh, when we're talking about Godspell. The Gospel of Luke is very much the social justice gospel. It's mm. the one, for example, when they did the Beatitudes in Godspell, it was blessed are the poor in spirit. When they do the Beatitudes in Luke, it's blessed are the ah, poor, okay. right? Like that's mm. the kind of difference between That's the a big difference, though. Um, like, that's a big, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but Luke is also written for a more Gentile audience. It's pitched mm. at people who are Greek or Roman who are interested in the Jesus movement. And as a consequence, its emphasis is more on absolving Roman power, which is why uh, this musical is much more interested in Pontius Pilate. Uh, It's much more interested in putting Herod on stage as the kind of evil king of the Jews who needs to be contradistincted to Jesus. Um, And it's the last week of Jesus's life, uh, basically from Palm Sunday when he arrives in Jerusalem into Holy Thursday when he causes the incident at the temple Mm -hmm. that necessitates his crucifixion. Um, uh, And that's the story that it tells from like the priests trying to deal with this kind of insurrectionist who has arrived in the city capital, uh, knowing that it is putting a lot of pressure on the Romans to get rid of this treasonous element. Um, And it sort of uses, in an interesting way, its protagonist is not Jesus, but Judas, as this figure who recognizes, is a part of this movement, but recognizes it has uh, crossed some lines and now eventually feels like he must betray this figure to save his people. Um, And that's the story that this weird, (laughs) wild again hippie-ish but kind of disco too right it looks much more forward than godspell did right like jesus christ superstar is definitely like a disco the soldiers are in lavender (laughs) tank tops that is like the one thing i could not look away from true and I love, like, I love Judas, Judas if it was, like, uh, not dusty and looked like he'd been living in it for 10 years. His outfit would be quite a disco outfit, too. But, yeah. yeah. They, uh, Especially they really that last them. one for the final oh. number. Oh, that's that, true, like, too. All, that, like, the the Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. uh, like, <laughs> long. Uh, yeah, one of the reasons good. I love watching musical theater performers perform is because there is such a power and endurance to what they do that they make look right. effortless. And I don't often like to compare things things but it was really interesting to me and enlightening because like like i said i got very into the music here and um the carl anderson performance is unbelievable like unbelievable he doesn't miss Ooh. a beat um especially when he does jesus christ superstar which is like the greatest song like it's up there and like one of the best musical theater songs ever written just like with all the i love like sondheim does this so well where i love where the lyrics don't match the upbeatness of the song and like when you start to like really right. look in the lyrics you're like oh this is some dark serious shit and then like it's like super sing-alongable in the car yeah. um and I saw Tim Minchin do it. Tim Minchin is, I'm a huge fan of Tim Minchin, but I was watching him do it and I was like, oh, this is a hard song to sing. Because although Tim Minchin is an excellent singer, <laughs> he couldn't keep up with like the breath control that's required and the power in those moments and the backup singers were out singing mm. him. So it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I can really respect how incredible this song and how incredible these performers are that are doing this on this scale, which feels cinematic. Yeah. So yeah, I can't even, I can, and I, yeah. it makes sense to me why this went from a concept album that no one wanted to fund into a musical into like stage <laughs> performances and then the musical and then the film like that's really interesting it makes total sense that this would just live and die based just on the music yeah and can you can you illuminate me becky i got a little confused in the the like uh genesis of this uh (laughs) uh, uh, of like they were kind of developing the film and the stage musical simultaneously that's what happened so norman jewison was given a copy of the music um by barry denon who was 
the like That's concept correct. album, yes, right? Who was yeah. doing uh, Fiddler okay. at the time, and he voiced Pontius Pilate mm-hmm. in the concept album, um, and then would go on to play it mm-hmm. in the uh, in the actual film itself. So he gave this to Norman Jewison, being like, "Hey, you're doing a musical now. This might interest you." And he was like, "I love this." And part of the reason why the stage production got made was because the movie was so championed by Norman okay. Jewison, who had just knocked out Fiddler on the Roof. So yeah. that's part of it. I mean, it's very fascinating because it also sounds like when I've only seen it on stage, uh, it's interesting because it's referencing the movie as far as I can tell, right? Like quite often the, the everyone's dressed like those big hats <laughs> and stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, it's interesting that the movie kind of invented a lot of, whereas I was like, because uh, I kind of wrote down like, you know, because I'm dumb and didn't do my research first. I was like, both of these are trying to do like a black box theater thing. But it's like Norman Jewison decided to make a movie a black box theater thing. And that's why Jesus Christ Superstar is kind of an on girders. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's uh, I love the way this movie is just kind of almost the opposite take to a similar effect as Godspell, where it's like squatting in these ruins. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a weird way that it I, it feels between that and the sort of opening where they're getting off the bus, it feels like we're watching ghosts who have to like rehearse over and mm. over again these events oh, from 2,000 yep. years ago, right? Like yeah. they're kind of possessed by these entities and then they perform this weird ritual act where they leave him behind and then they get mm. back on the bus at the end, right? Um, yeah, there is something very alarming it's, a, it's sad and painful yeah. but you get so caught up in it you forget that and that's kind of the magic of a like really good movie like when you watch like a tearjerker you don't go in going like oh god i hope i feel sad you go in because it gives you a human experience right and that's what brings you into it and i think mm. that's what this does really well fiddler does the same thing fiddler is like that... incredibly yeah, sad yeah, <laughs> you know you get great yes. moments of Emotional, joy but, yeah. oh. And also, I, I think two things that these do compared to Fiddler and uh, Cabaret that are interesting is these are both tight, hundred-minute yeah. movies. These both are not afraid to cut songs and streamline yeah. and make it uh, like a, make it a feature-length film. So I think even you know, even if I'm annoyed by Godspell, it's in and out, and I'm you know <laughs> I'm humming the tunes. Uh, and the same one here, where I think it's like this one is kind of a more emotionally impactful because it's such a quick telling. Like if you went epic in two and a half hours. Hours, you might be a little less you be also would be like i've been trying for three years seems like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah i don't know and i, I mean i love that like, when you're talking about those locations and those ruins i was fascinated to read that like you know each of these ones has like a, a biblical importance where they're like they, they think this cave is where david waited to like meet goliath and this weird ruin <laughs> is whatever from the bible it's like that's amazing that's actually and, and I don't think that happens even much in in the real staid tellings of yeah. the life. Here's of one of the things that's like really interesting to me, just in terms of cinematic history, is that this was very much funded by the is newly established Israeli Film Center, who mm-hmm. really like who kind of struck a deal with Norman Jewison because if Norman Jewison went out and like took out variety ads and things about how great it was to film in Israel, they gave him access to all of these places and did a bunch of funding. So if you kind of look at it, you're like, oh, this is also how Golan and Globus of Canon Films would have laid have gotten funding for their stuff because the Israeli Film Center filmed or uh, funded so much of their things. So, like, this is really instrumental yeah. to American film, the American film industry as well. Like, you don't have Canon Films and all that without it. And of course, uh, Golan and Globus would go on to <laughs> barely pay attention to Godspell and that make is the correct. Apple, which is basically like a <laughs> weird version of that Godspell. That is correct. I totally so forgot that. Thank you, Cam. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but you're right. Kill disco. Yeah, yes. God bless. I just uh, yeah. that the other day. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean I, that's why I thought of you because I was like, oh yes, famous Israeli film, The Apple. But yeah, Lemon Popsicle, <laughs> their big movie came out in 1978, which is Americans know it was remade as The Last American Virgin. Um, but yeah, yeah, Lemon Popsicle. So you're probably right, and I love. I mean, it's it's good and bad. Obviously, uh, <laughs> feelings about Israel that's are true. complex, but uh, there's there's interesting stories where uh, there was a day they went to film and all the electricians weren't there because uh, they're all in the army and they had to go fight <laughs> oh a battle, <laughs> which is uh, a little crazy. And the film is thinking about that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like we see the tanks, yeah. we see the, the planes the, and the, the planes going by. Yeah. Like again, there there's the same, they both really hit, both films really hit hard. Um, the speech Jesus gave, because of course both these gospels are written after the temple falls in 70 CE and Jesus has a moment in both where he predicts that fall. Um, mm-hmm. There's the song in this one uh, where Simon the Zealot is singing about like 
there's must be over 50,000 screaming love and joy for you. Um, add a touch of hate of, at Rome, right? Like Simon and Judas want Jesus to be a political figure. They want mm. him to be the revolutionary that they've been waiting for. And he won't do it because he foresees the kind of the, the fall of the temple, the what that action will lead to. Um, and again, it, it hits as like a very powerful, mournful moment in this film when he turns that melody against them. And it becomes about like, this is what violence will lead to. Um, and they're standing in this completely devastated, destroyed by the Bar Kokhba re- revolt, um, the putting down of that by the Romans. And this movie, one of the reasons it's haunted is because it has this odd foresight about it too. Mm, yeah. Um, that I think is fed to it straight from the gospels. Uh, and I find sublime in a lot of ways. Like you were talking about the kind of the difficulty of this musical over, like you can knock Godspell out in a weekend, right? Like one song per person, like we'll just do some somersaults and honk some clown noses and we'll be fine. This one's like four people have to hit notes. You did not think a human voice Mm. could hit at both ends, right? Like when Caiaphas is down in the bass, it's like, oh my God, like I've never heard that sound. Oh, sure. Yes. We need a a more permanent solution. Yeah. Yeah, And I I think it's funny because you talk about Godspell. A lot of those people didn't go on because I think they're more theatrical actors. They're more comedians. They're more that kind of stuff. Here, it's almost more that they're singers. Like Yvonne Elliman, like she's amazing as Mary Magdalene. And, and, it's also fascinating. She's like an Asian woman who's like yeah. a lead of a movie. Uh, but and she was um, found for this. Yeah, like so, she was found in the UK yeah, yeah, singing yeah. in like a small pub by Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was like, hey, I got this stuff. Can you come like give this a go? And now she's married. Yeah, I mean, that, like, of course. Yeah. And so you kind of get that like th- these guys didn't go on. They went on to various weird things. Like you kind of get that these guys were brought in for just this, even though, yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, it's very it's, park and bark, right? Like mm. you. You, that's what Jewison recognizes, I think, at a technical level he has to do in this movie is like, I'm going to stand Ted Neely on a hill while he hits a note you've never heard a human voice hit before. And I'm going to pan out to the craziest landscape you've ever seen oh, in your yeah, life. Yeah. Right. Yes. Because like, it's not like this, this Jesus, this Jesus is not about to do a handstand or anything like Victor <laughs> no. Garber might. Yeah. Right? Especially <laughs> Jesus, especially his sad, sad, angry Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, he is, it's like, again, I love him. I mean, the number one as, as a film history person, the fa- thing you always have to throw out is Norman Jewish and not Jewish. And again, he yeah. is like, but again, he's coming along and being like, have you thought about the living world of Israel? Like, <laughs> right, right. Norman <laughs> you do it to yourself, man. Everybody thinks you're Jewish because you're like, he's like, ah, a shepherd wandered into the frame. And I yeah. love that to think of living Israel. It's like, Norman Jewison, what are you I doing? Do, I do want to talk a bit about the casting here because we got into Yvonne Elliman. Um, so like, sure. it's interesting to me. So Murray Head is the voice of Jew- uh, is uh, the voice of Judas in the, oh. the uh, album version. Mm. And Murray Head, some people may not know, an excellent musical theater performer, also the brother of Anthony Stewart Head from Buffy yes. um, oh, had another because uh, his version of he's one night in he's Bangkok, one night in right? that was Where his second had? big yeah, hit okay. based on a musical theater <laughs> song because okay. those were his only Billboard hits were yeah. from musical theaters so he did that and then Ian Gillian from uh, Deep Purple played Jesus in that version and he was offered mm. Jesus but he didn't want it so they he didn't want to do the film because mm. he was touring with Deep Purple and that's he wanted to be a rock star that's what he was right okay. so they had to go on like a quest for Jesus if you will yeah. um, which they would do again <laughs> in 2012 with a uh, reality show in the UK. Oh, I was going to say, make it that is a reality, reality show, show in 2012 oh. where they were doing like, they were going to do like an oh, arena okay. tour of Jesus Christ Superstar and yeah. they did a thing. Don French was one of the judges. It's fascinating. Anyway, oh, a woman it. who okay. notoriously cannot sing, cannot sing so bad that she mm. could not be in Mamma Mia in a non-singing <laughs> role. Like that's, that's mm. how bad she is. She was one of the panelists. But that being said, so, um, so they even looked at John Travolta and apparently John Travolta mm. did not get it but that's what put him on Robert Stigwood's radar for Saturday Night Fever so Ooh, that's amazing. interesting but then Ted Neely was doing a production of Hair and there was a number of people who were like you guys need to see Ted Neely or you need to see Ted Neely do yeah. this like he can hit the notes and he was also in Tommy he was. apparently like a, a stage version that's of correct Tommy. so he yeah. sent uh, Norman Jewison tickets to come down and see it and it was like he was driving a thing from like the Palisades into like downtown Los Angeles so you know an exponentially long drive two hours (laughs) and so he went in to see him and he had hurt his leg and wasn't performing that day he just hadn't double checked so Jewison was pissed and so Ted Neely went to his hotel room and like dressed as Jesus with like fake facial hair (laughs) 
and <laughs> knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm so sorry. I just wanted to show up and like do a quick audition and like see how you can see how I look like Jesus. Let me do this. And apparently he was charmed. And when he sang, he was like, yeah, 100%. This is what you, you're Jesus. Yeah, Let's I, do I, it. A fascinating thing about the casting that I like uh, watching it and then reading about the casting is that obviously from the film and, and he references it visually, he's obsessed with art of Jesus. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's very fascinating that Ted Neely looks a lot like an art Jesus. Like I think more than the, the, the kind of, you know, sad classical, yeah. I'm sure I've seen a Ted Neely hanging in church. And then also the fact that Carl, like he said, Carl Anderson, he said the racial stuff is just, he was the best he's guy and it's the best role. He's the best singer. (laughs) But then also he suits so well so many depictions of The Last Supper where Judas is usually a darker-skinned fellow for metaphorical reasons. (laughs) So, yeah. Anti-Semitic reasons. Yeah, Yeah. and racist and, yeah, Yeah. you name it. It, Because that that was something that struck me immediately, too, when I saw it. It was like, oh, my God, Mm. they cast Judas as black. However, for me, that's also like, that is a very traditional telling of of the story where all we see is Judas is as the betrayer. And here it's so much more of a complex character character of why he does it and the remorse yeah. afterwards right. of doing it, adding that complexity to it, I think takes away from the racial aspect for me. Oh, I also think that, yeah, it's like, you gotta remember number one, the cast is just completely racially yeah. diverse. You can tell it doesn't matter. Number two, you gotta remember uh, Norman Jewison was the king of uh, black people right. casting like that was his deal in the heat of the night is him he was the guy who was going to make malcolm x before he's like spike lee should make <laughs> malcolm x like norman jewison i think gets it and always kind of got it you know he was he was mindful of casting judas as a black man i think and yeah, yeah it has uh, its interpretation of judas is so interesting to me because it is it is actually one of the biggest departures this film makes from the gospel of luke which Um, Judas is given different motives in the different gospels, but Luke makes him greedy that like, Mm. it makes sense if you're doing the socialist gospel, that the bad guy would be a figure of greed, right? Like he wants money. He uses the money to invest in land and he proceeds to explode somehow (laughs) on that (laughs) land. He like bursts like a a blood balloon on the land. Um, the film keeps the hanging part as Mm. the way he dies instead, which is from the other gospel but adds so much complexity to his motivations, right? Like, not just the political one, but again, there's a bit of a queer vibe yeah. here, too, oh, yeah. right? Like, He's jealous of Mary Magdalene, no, yeah, for sure. Exactly. And that, I also kind of love that there's a weird, like, a very modern, like, in-the-pandemic thing, I think, where he's so mad about the anointing and so mad about resting and so mad about, like, <laughs> we can use that money for the poor. We right. should be working harder. And it's like, Judas, you don't understand self-care. Like, Jesus can't help these people. If his feet are sore, man, he's got to he's gotta anoint himself like, down so again, buddy. Is that in that scene, you do see Judas's point, which I really love. But then mm. you see oh, yeah. when Jesus is being, like, pulled on by all sides by the lepers and you're like okay i get it where like Mm. if you are a man and you are human you just have this like you know other aspect to you i can understand why you are just so tired like everyone wants suffering from (laughs) burnout guys he's suffering from burnout he needs breathing exercises aren't (laughs) enough judas and the knowledge that he's about to die right which like guess the mean i think is like that song i mean that song's unbelievable to begin with but like it's an incredible epiphany song so not only is it a hard song to sing it's like to act through all of those different emotions like you're going through all the stages of grief in one song that's like three minutes long it's bananas yeah, I will say, and I and I think just to, I guess to give credit to your mother, I do understand. Um, I think something that both of these films do with the music, and especially for yeah. a rock opera, this one they really favor um, the acting, and I think that they favor the enunciation right. uh, to the point where yeah. sometimes the songs are delivered a little less. Like you can imagine a better version of these songs if they, if they were really given well. it. it. And I, and I think Ted Neely, <laughs> what is great about him is the acting. Uh, and, but I can see that, <laughs> yes, oh my God. And, and he just looks miserable and tired. And also to know that these people, they had to hydrate every 20 minutes. I love that. They had giant blocks yeah. of ice to give them water. Like it, it's everybody loved it and was like, it was great, but it's like every story sounds awful. Uh, but yeah, he's good. Ted Neely also met his wife on this. She's one of the dancers in the cave and he was. Oh my God. That story is so beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. So at the very beginning when they're all doing what's the and this woman with this long dark hair was dancing ecstatically and he was worried she was going to burn her hair because she was getting really close to the fire so when they took a break he came up to her and he said excuse me I need to 
and he stopped because they got caught in each other's eyes. <laughs> and he was like, it was the most beautiful woman I'd seen in my life. He's like, exactly. And, they, and then this became his wife. And it's been his wife for like the last, like, what, 45 years at this point? They're still married? Like, I'm like, that's amazing. And also you're dressed as Jesus. I love that. Excuse me, ma'am. It's in the show, too, right? Like, the, I don't know how to love him is really one of the best ballads ever written. And the fact that both Mary and Judas get a crack at it during the show is really amazing to me. Also, like, the S&M hotness of those priests is really amazing, too, right? Like... <laughs> True. Yeah, I mean, those are maybe the most attractive guys, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, I want to come to I Don't Know How to Love Him just for a second, because this is something else that hadn't really happened up until this point, was that that song was on the charts at the same time by two different artists, both Yvonne Elliman and Helen Reddy. Helen Reddy's came out first, so it charted higher because, like, you're only going to buy one copy, right, of the two, Mm -hmm. and Helen's came out first. But Yvonne Elliman's is considered the definitive, even though Helen Reddy's is very good. Yeah, I mean, that song is perfect, right? Like, it's interesting how every character is trying to triangulate their relationship to Jesus' ministry, including Jesus. (laughs) And, like, and that one... It goes to what I was saying earlier when we were talking about the resurrection, right? Like her question, although posed as like a romantic one, is the question Mm. of the show. Like it actually is the same question as the Jesus Christ Superstar song, right? Like what am I supposed to think about you? How am I supposed Mm. to relate to you as a person? Is this a romantic relationship? What, what, in what, when you say I'm supposed to love you, what does that mean? Like that's kind of the question she's asking. And that's why I think it's so beautiful that, in the moment where he realizes by betraying Jesus, he has destroyed himself. Judas has this kind of strained reprise of it where he has to, he has to perform that melody too. And then the demonic performance of Jesus Christ superstar, where Mm. that question comes back as a taunt, right? Like, is there a reason for me to be haunted by this ghost still? In both we directions? talked about yeah. the Beatles musical Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> in the first season, yeah. which I do love. And understanding Robert Stigwood's involvement here and now having seen this and seen mm. Sgt. Pepper's, I'm like, man, there's echoes of the two of them there. And it's the biggest echo is that Sgt. Pepper's doesn't have the same soul as this does, but it's going for mm-hmm. the same story and message of like the redemption. And like, these are, these are people who have been tasked with something larger than themselves. And so seeing where it works in one and mm-hmm. doesn't work in the other. And like, it's very clear one influenced the other. It's very interesting. <laughs> so uh, you're giving a lot of credit to that terrible film. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Perhaps if it was shot by Douglas Slocum and uh, it would look better. They both have a weird thing where like they're about music from the 60s, but you can hear the 70s. You can hear disco forming, right? Mm -hmm. Like it feels like disco is invented before your eyes in this musical. Like by the end, we've got the bangles and the fringes and the disco ball that is Judas descending from the ceiling. And I mean, there's... there is, it's still kind of disco-y, but apparently the big departure he took from a lot of the, that uh, Jewison took was that Herod was a drag queen usually uh. and a very over the top thing. But he kind of thought that that was maybe too far out of his interpretation yeah. uh, and too distracting. So he went with Josh Mustel. Did instead. you hear the castings thing on this one where when he, he no. okay, so Norman Jewison went through uh, Zero Mustel first because he wanted Josh Mustel and Zero was still pissed about not being in the film version. So he was like, if you're gonna cast someone, oh, go, ca- Fiddler, yeah, go yeah. cast Topple's son, because it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be my son. <laughs> okay. He's so mad. That's great. I, I think he's pretty good, but I, when you watch other ones, like I, I don't know, Becky, you probably saw the your your best friend, uh, religious man Alice Cooper, yes. play it, who, which was so good. And somebody sent a, or in some of my research, there was a clip of Rick Mayall doing oh, I gotta it see that. as like a weird lounge lizard. Oh. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's Josh Mustel is kind of missing something missing some of the juice uh i don't know but it's funny it's great he looks great that works for me like there's Mm. a way that the kind of fatuous idiocy of it makes a point right like this is what actual worldly power looks like Mm. right because i don't think it's an accident right because jewison tracks back there's a very distant shot where we're watching the dancers moving and they look it looks bad right it looks silly it looks impotent which i think is yeah. the point he of looks this like almost here. hugh Hefnerian. i do like a scary 
Yeah. yeah. He's like yeah. Hugh Hefnerian in this version. Yeah, yes. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do like, I've seen this show, maybe I don't even want to count him many times on stage. <laughs> and I do occasionally like a very, there was a recent production here in Toronto, right before the Omicron wave, where Herod was terrified, okay. right? Like, he he ran down the line. He was kind of a drag queeny kind yeah. of character, but like, he they very purposely evoke the beheading of John the Baptist, right? Mm. Which the Alice Cooper one does too, because yeah. he's wearing the, the suit with the Gentileschi print yeah. on it. But I kind of like, it's a choice this sure. film is making is like, what if he's not scary? What if he is the silliest thing you've ever seen? Yeah. And it kind of actually relieves the tension of the film for Things a that he's interpreted, which were, if we are to believe it, they were actual, actually miracles, him turning them into parlor tricks, like the walk across my yeah. pool, you right. know, turn my water into wine, like yeah. the him making fun of it, but you're like, no, you're actually the asshole, right? Like that's really interesting. Yes. Right? Oh yeah. And I think that, that what works is that Ted Neely looks like, Ted Neely looks like a man who knows he's about to die. So right. and he's just checked out entirely while this guy yeah. sings at him. Yeah. There's only one character with dignity in that scene. Yep. Yeah. 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 Herod was just yeah. waiting those 33 years to get him. You know, it was just a sure, matter of time. Yes. It was coming. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it's now, it, it's an interesting show that has changed, I think, par- over time. And now that is the, you know, that's the curtain call where you get a celebrity to come on and play Herod because right. they only need to trot out for 20 minutes and, and sing a song that's pretty easy to sing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yeah. I got to I gotta end us on this note because I'm sure we could talk about these forever because they're fantastic. So uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Cameron Maitland, for being with us today. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, as I say, look up the Sugar Shop and uh, Victor Garber's early folk music because <laughs> you'll, you'll enjoy those outfits. <laughs> I need outfits. to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. First time on the podcast. It was such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. I love both these films and this was uh, a great conversation about them. I think that... They are endlessly fascinating, but I think we didn't I think so. Job. In like the hour that we had, you know, I, I could, I could yeah. easily talk about Jesus Christ Superstar. I think what's weird for me is that um, my mother is such a big fan of this and she was such a big influence on like my cinematic education, like getting me stuff I really shouldn't have been watching because she's like, you need to see this mm. if you want to mm. do this. And uh, she never showed me this movie and I do not know why. So it's... it's uh, keeping it for herself. Didn't want you to ruin it. <laughs> it's her own little secret because she, she's just thinking mm. about Ian Gillian. She's not thinking about Ted Neely. Sure. That's why it's not her version. Um, how can people find your work, Anthony? Oh, uh, easiest place is probably on Twitter. Uh, it's Mia Koopa, which is a bad Latin church pun about <laughs> Super Mario, uh, or AnthonyOlivera.com. Um, I've got a podcast where I talk called The Devil's Party, where I talk about uh, this very thing. We talk about the Gospels and how we should be reading them and what the heck they're trying to say. Uh, and that's on Patreon.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And you can join us next time where we're going to look at two extremely psychedelic movies and we'll be joined once again by the fantastic Cat Ellinger. It's Holy Mountain and Messiah of Evil. That's coming up in a couple weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Cameron Maitland and Anthony Oliveira as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>